Welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast about history and how to think about history. For more on this episode, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can find links and readings related to today's podcast, comment on the conversation, and sign up for our newsletter. And consider becoming a member of the Historically Thinking Common Room, a community of Patreon supporters. Timothy Pocatat is a professor of anthropology at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign and director of the Illinois State Archaeological Survey. He is the preeminent archaeologist of the Mississippian civilization, which centered on the area around modern St. Louis. And his latest book, Gods of Thunder, How Climate Change, Travel, and Spirituality Reshaped Pre-Colonial America, connects the Mississippians to neighbors near and far. It gives the reader a unique portrait of a world now almost completely lost to us, but still visible in places if you know where to look. Timothy Pocatat, welcome to Historically Thinking. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. Well, I've, it's very amazing to me. Uh, this was, uh, listeners will be connecting this to a very recent conversation with Dean Snow about David Ingram's incredible walk uh, along the eastern seaboard of the United States. But I insist to listeners, this was I'm not that smart. This was not planned. I just, these just <laughs> these books showed up almost simultaneously in the Oxford University Press catalog, and they were both interesting. And only after I had read both of them not at the same time, did I realize how intimately connected these two topics are. Um, so maybe, I, I, maybe after COVID, we're all thinking about travel. It could be well be. So uh, I think at the conclusion of my, the talk with uh, Dean, I uh, said how this was like looking um, that Ingram, you know, who had persuaded me that Ingram was not a liar and that actually he had seen what he had what Ingram said he had seen. And it was like looking at uh, a very foggy Polaroid of sort of an action scene. Um, so you could just see a glimmer of this culture uh, that is about to completely disappear. Um, and but, you, but Ingram saw it while people were still alive and behaving in ways they had for potentially centuries. You take us back a little bit farther into an earlier era, and it's a very exciting it's a very exciting picture that you give us. So let's set some levels here and define some terms. Um, first of all, what are the dates of the medieval warm period in the Americas? <clears throat> well, I, I try to be a little generous. Uh, people will set you know, slightly different decades they'll, they'll pick, but basically it's between 800 AD uh, or CE and 1300 CE. Uh, it's generally a little later than that in some parts um, of the Americas and uh, ending a little uh, earlier than that in, in other parts of the Americas. And overall, the trend of climate from, from, from you're going, you kind of start the book in Guatemala and move to the Mississippi Valley and look into various places sort of off that route. Um, climate's complicated, as we, we should know by now. Um, medieval Western Europe certainly has a, enjoys that, as I described, that warming, which allows good wine to be grown in southern England. Um, and it might be as high as three degrees Fahrenheit. I, I, I don't know what the thought is on now, but it, that changes agricultural yields in Western Europe, makes it a much wealthier place. What are the effects in these regions in, in America? Uh, well, just like Europe and Asia, so other, I mean, parts of Asia get cooler and yeah, and drier, and so it's actually not great for the all of the old world. 
Um, same thing in the Americas. Uh, uh, it, generally, in, in the northern hemisphere, it does get warmer, and and we don't really know how much warmer could be as much as two degrees um, Celsius is the, the thought uh, in some places. Uh, critically, uh, in some places, however, it's associated with increasing dryness, so there are droughts. Uh, so it's heat and dry, and that's not necessarily good for crops. And in other places, uh, up the Mississippi Valley, in, in parts of New Mexico, uh, it, it's warmer and wetter, and and, that, and it thus you know has another kind of effect um, on those people. Um, interestingly enough, you know, you, you there's there are a series of religious movements, and that's what this book is about. That seem to be spreading. Uh, same gods, even though the climatic direction, you know, the changes might be a little different, wetter here, drier there, same gods seem to be appearing to, um, uh, people are, are appealing to, to mitigate the, the conditions. Well, this is very related to an, yet another previous conversation with Philip Jenkins, who was talking about the way climate changes leads to different changes in religion. Um, certainly Islam is, uh, the, the, the rise of Islam is deeply affected by the, the medieval warm period. I made reference in the first paragraph to the papacy uh, and the monastic movements throughout early medieval Europe are definitely affected by the medieval warm period. So what we're saying is the same thing is happening in Mesoamerica. Um, what there, Throughout the book, I, let's think of it as the standard received view. You never describe it in great detail, but it's obviously that you're, you're poking at it and poking at it and jab, jab, jab throughout the book. And then sometimes, boom, boom, you give a couple of, you know, <laughs> uppercuts, but there is a, certainly there's a standard receive you. And I know that you've been, you've been quarreling with it for a lot longer than the, uh, for many, for decades by, by now. So what's the standard received view, which you are contesting? Uh, this standard view, which is based in both the kind of parochial nature of archeology. span I mean, that is, you know, you get in depth into your region and you know a whole lot about your region, and um, you have to, and you don't necessarily step outside of that too much. That, combined with a bias against indigenous Americans, uh, that, well, you know, maybe they weren't very sophisticated, uh, those two things combined lead to the standard view, which is change is local, it's regional, and maybe there was occasional contact with other people far away, but those changes probably didn't matter too much because people had to live in their, in their regions. So that's, it's very interesting that that holds on since, you know, what little reading I've done in this, you find things like say pottery beginning in one region of very ancient America and then spreading. You find say the atlatl or the bow and arrow beginning. You can usually people can trace, can't they trace those to more or less one region and then see it spread outward from that? Uh, not necessarily. Well, yes, usually it's something like pottery has mm -hmm. multiple origin spots. Okay. And so the people will allow for that kind of diffusion of material culture. Interestingly enough, though, they still, archaeologists tend not to give that too much historical explanatory power. They still will resort to, yes, but, you know, pottery comes in, local people think it's great, so therefore they, they adopt it. But it's still the local, you know, economics of that environment in that region that matters. It's interesting. Um, 
They, and of course, there are other kind of rights now rapidly occur to me. Corn, for example, corn be- beginning in Central America s- spreads out. Um, that certainly comes from a, an epicenter. It doesn't, it can't, it can't for genetic reasons begin everywhere. Um, and, um, you know, I've read this guy Paukatat's book on Cahokia. I know there's obsi- obsidian from Yellowstone found that you found in Cahokia. And I know that there are, you know, seashells found throughout the North American continent very far from the coasts. So something's going on. Something's going on. And and the the kinds of arguments that you and I both would favor, which is like contact does matter and people do travel and cultures change because of of the mix. Um, that's an easier case for folks to accept scholars in the, in the Southwest, for instance, because there, there's clearly also trade, uh, chocolate and obsidian and turquoise and macaws. Uh, it's less, and the, the problem is more pronounced, the problem of, of uh, getting beyond the standard explanation is more pronounced in the Eastern United States. Uh, because there is clearly not established uh, Pan-American trade, you know, especially not between Mesoamerica and the Eastern United States. It isn't there. So um, scholars want to sort of assume, well, if there's not trade, then there couldn't be anything significant going on here. And, and the argument of the book is, sure there is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's, it's not about trade. And we've overemphasized trade. It's about um, people's spirituality and and um, uh, climate and, and well, the rest. Yeah. I would also the other another mistaken sort of injection in this, which you didn't touch on, was also like the first chapter of Howard Zinn's uh, book on on the on America, uh, in which he has uh, people which I think of as Indians. Um, they're not they're 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 constructs of a, like an old style Marxist view. Uh, they don't trade, of course, because they're completely self-sufficient communists. And because he's uninterested in spirituality, they don't do much of that either. So that sort of dismisses immediately two other aspects of that. Well, that misses two of the things that we're, we're about to spend the entire conversation talking about, which, which is uh, interesting things being exchanged back and forth between people's call it what you will, and also ideas of spirituality and the gods being exchanged back and forth between people's. Um, yeah, and, and, and of those, I would emphasize the ideas, and, yeah. and also emphasize that ideas are very seldom uh, invisible um, entities. They are often they're materialized in mm-hmm. things, uh, and and those things are, um, you know, not necessarily have any technological value. They're not necessarily precious, but they they are sought after because they are powerful. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what accounts for a lot of the travel. People go to obtain knowledge, which is usually in things from far off places. Let's begin after this period with two historical accounts by Spaniards, uh, two very different trips, not as far, not as far apart as I thought they were in my head. I had to go check up on this again. But one is uh, DeSoto's... Um, his uh, crazed, you know, sort of Werner Herzog journey through the southeastern United States across the Mississippi and back. And the other is the ver- another kind of Werner Herzog movie. It would be a great Werner Herzog movie with Cabeza de Vaca's sort of uh, shipwreck and wandering across the Southwest. So what, right. do they, what do they tell us about what has been going on in those regions for previous centuries? 
Um, <clears throat> I love Cabeza de Vaca's account and, and the other three survivors because uh, unlike De Soto and unlike a lot of the other conquistadors, those, those men are clearly changed at the end of that journey in part because they're, you know, they're, they're lost, they're stranded, it takes them years to get back to Mexico City and then Spain. Uh, so, and, and Cabeza de Vaca precedes De Soto. And right, in fact, I even wonder if- Three or four years. Uh, I guess. Oh, uh, well, set more than that, so more, more than, that. than a okay. decade. Yeah. Uh, so um, Cabeza de Vaca starts with um, Penfilo Narvaez, you know, and, and this they're going to conquer the Southeast looking for the kind of gold that uh, Narvaez has actually, been, you know, seen in Mexico City. Uh, but he's not really ready for the for the journey, and he, he's ill-equipped, undermanned. Uh, they end up in Florida. They get their butts kicked. They they escape on rafts. Um, uh, what's left of them, and uh, and then those rafts uh, end up getting washed ashore over near Galveston, Texas. Uh, and at that point, uh, the natives in that area uh, aren't real friendly. Um, aren't real happy that these men are there and are begging for food more than likely. Um, and after being stuck for three or four years and in Texas and uh, maybe Tamaulipas, we're not quite sure where and there they're, they're kind of moving around. They decide four of them are left and they decide they're going to journey back. Uh, they're already changed by that point. I mean, they've already been acculturated, you know, in, in a, in a way. Uh, and when they start their journey, uh, Cabeza de Vaca is a very good observer, and he he's uh, he's almost he's anthropological. You know, he's he's noting customs and uh, uh, stories of the people that they're staying with as they move into the southwest. They head they head west because going south they figure is dangerous. They're going to get recaptured by the same kinds of uh, foragers that they were stuck with. So they head west. <coughs> they they. Uh, Tell, it's a very short account, but none of that's very rich. Uh, they head west and then south, where they finally, you know, encounter more Spaniards who are at that point conquering uh, the rest of Mexico. Uh, and they they don't really. I mean, their mission is just to get back home. Uh, so it's a very different thing than say De Soto, who lands in 1539 in the, in the same area of Florida. And does what Narvaez wanted to do, which was, you know, go inland and conquer and see if they could find gold and other resources. Uh, he he does that with a much uh, larger army, with a, with a herd of pigs and more horses, and they march across the southeast. <clears throat> and they they uh, make war on many places uh, as they move, you know, as they move west. Their idea was also to go back to Mexico City, of course, to Soto. Um, dies in the, on the Mississippi, and they struggle then to get back. There's no anthropologically minded person on that journey, uh, and the accounts are very uh, political. You know, uh, this kingdom and that kingdom, and how they uh, make war on that you know that group or another as they as they make their way. So yeah, it's dramatically different. Uh, they both give us some kind of information, but Cabeza de Vaca really hits the spiritual side much more. And so uh, it, actually it's why I wrote this book. I, I uh, reread that and I thought this is the way to open up this new understanding of, of a kind of a, a you know, trans-American um, uh, narrative of history, a historical narrative.
So what did you see in Cabeza de Vaca's account um, that made you, I should say that De Soto is showing us what people take to be the, the relics of Mississippian civilization in the Southeast, that there, there are traces of this, yes? I mean, he's seeing us as sort of the, the, the afterglow of the Mississippian effect uh, on the Southeast. Well, what's happened in the Southeast? Early on, it was much more of a sort of a theater state, you know, a, a very grand. Cahokia was this inclusive uh, um, uh, behemoth. Later in the Mississippian period, before the Spaniards arrive, it becomes more feudal, broken mm-hmm. down into very vibrant, but nonetheless smaller, uh, think of them as not city-states, but town-states almost, uh, that controlled territories and that warred with one another. Uh, so he sees that, and he gives a good account of that. <clears throat> and really, Nevaez only saw a little piece of that, and then they run away. Yeah. Uh, but what I, DeSoto doesn't see... I'm sorry. No, but, I, and then, and then fi- we should say that even 50 years later, what he did see isn't there to see anymore or it's, right. it's, it's even radically tra- tra- It's radically changed again with the, int- with probably with the smallpox bacillus finally arriving and yes, completely, yes. you know, destroying communities. It, it, dest- it destroys communities. And then those communities are forced to reform as kind of polyglot, multi-ethnic composite communities and it becomes something very different. It's true. Yeah. <clears throat> and we end up with, you know, the, the tr- uh, southeastern tribes that we know today mm-hmm. uh the amazing thing about cabeza de vaca and his three partners as as they're stranded is that they are used by natives um as healers and also they 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 trade a minimal kind of trading where they're they're uh, acquiring seashells and they're taking them inland and then they carry you know flint let's say back to the coast like that. It's a very uh, small scale trade. But the more interesting thing is, uh, especially as they start moving across uh, Texas and into the Southwest, uh, they're looked upon in spiritual terms as, as uh, maybe even uh, the original gods that these people are familiar with, creator gods, because they fit the description of some of these South Texas Mesoamerican um, uh, uh, gods. How? That go all the way down to the Mesoamerica. Uh, so they're, they're bearded. They're, they're bearded. Uh, and that's important. The, the gods are bearded. There's um, one that is darker skinned uh, and others that are lighter skinned. And sure enough, you know, Cabeza de Vaca, uh, one, of his, uh, one of the three other survivors is uh, the Moor, so called the Moor, somebody who was enslaved um, by one of the other. Um, uh, members of the expedition, and then is uh, sort of a, uh, gains his freedom on this trip, uh, and in those ways they they fit the description. And this is also why uh, that the Moor uh, uh, Estevanico or Stephen ends up later in time. He goes back with Coronado or before Coronado into the southwest and, and gets killed because he's thought to be religiously too powerful in a dark way. So that was the indication to you as you thought, as you thought about the children of the sun. Um, there's another, there's another, there's another mention of another uh, sort of malignant deity, which also I think must have prompted some thoughts in you. Uh, Tezcatlipoca, I think yeah. is who we're yeah. talking about. Tezcatlipoca. So 
who has that <clears> sort <throat> of a, a, a variation on that name throughout Mesoamerica. Yeah, I mean that's yeah, yeah, and the and the association of that god with the winds, uh, winds that bring rain at nighttime, um, and also the dark forces of the underworld, and with flint, and that those associations show up in various ways um, uh, up into the Mississippi Valley um, and into the Southwest, certainly across Mesoamerica. Yes. So let's begin way south, far away from the Mississippi Valley in the, in basically Northern the Guatemala Highlands. Um, so we're going to trace sort of your, the, this very quickly, very briefly, we're going to trace the sort of direction of the book, which is, which is a travel. You're taking us on a journey from South to North. So why begin with the Maya? <clears throat> well, everybody knows the Maya to some extent when people think of Native American civilization, they think of the Maya first. Uh, I thought that was a good place. The Maya also kick off the, the changes at the beginning of the medieval warm period. The, the classic Maya kingdoms that many folks would have visited, you know, in, in terms of tourism today, collapse around 800 plus or minus. And through the 800s, certainly they're collapsing and they're replaced with uh, a, what some people have called a, a new religion. Um, smaller scale settlements that are that emphasize worship at uh, water holes or at, at springs and around um, steam baths or water shrines. And these are often circular or at least curvilinear. Uh, and that fact, and then what's associated with those water temples or water shrines, uh, the gods that seem to be associated. Um, we, you know, we will see as we keep moving, in, in, you know, to the north. Uh, it starts off with a, a, a pantheon of gods, and there's a water god. But that transition during the Maya collapse brings to the fore a wind that brings rain god, which is by and large a central Mexican god. Um, uh, later in time, known to the Aztec as Quetzalcoatl, mm -hmm. and his brother Tezcatlipoca. <laughs> Right. So the Mayans, their, their religious culture system alters. Um, it, it alters, and there's another interesting thing that's new, uh, and that got me excited, um, which I kind of had read before. This came, this started think, people started thinking about what's going on with the Maya to, in, the, in the north. That is, there's an enclave of northern Maya uh, near, on the Tampico River called the Huastecs. Yeah. And like, how did they get there? And people used to think that it was a really old split. But more recently, uh, linguists have started thinking, no, no, it's, it's actually probably dated to around 900 AD or CE. And we should say and the, that was, the Huastecs, Huastecs. Not, to be, not to be confused with the Aztecs. Up, right. So this is, this is north of Veracruz, sort of like halfway up the, the western coast. Um, and they seem to be a really important link in this whole chain. Uh, so could you get into, could you do a deeper dive into what they are receiving from other Mayans to the south and, and, and how they then develop their own sort of unique culture? Uh, it's a, uh... It's one of those regions where people have ignored it because they thought, oh, not very interesting. So anthropologists and archaeologists haven't done as much work there, which is uh, 
too bad, but um, it's certainly a potential for the future to know much more than I'm about to tell you. <clears throat> it's it, it you know there was certainly a vibrant series of towns. They're going all the way back deep into the classic period of Mesoamerica, when the Maya are going strong, when the big imperial states of Teotihuacan and central Mexico is going strong. You do have some kind of Huastec culture. Current thinking by the the best um, historical linguists are that they're probably not Maya speakers. Uh, they may be other other language speakers. And what happens around in the 800s and around 900 especially is you get an influx of Maya from, uh, you know, the Yucatan um, uh, who are getting in boats giving this period of radical climate change where their landscape is drying out and they're having to appeal to the, you know, wind that brings rain God for rain. Some of them leave and they go to a place that doesn't have the same kind of climatic problems. And that's the land of the Huastecs. So they bring an influx of Maya culture, it's thought, into this area just south of Texas. <clears throat> and that's, <clears throat> that's really important. And, and sure enough, you, you see uh, the same kind of water shrines uh, that you saw in the Maya in the Swastik region by about 900 circular uh, platform mounds with circular temples. And that's a key architectural um, uh, pattern. Um, alongside other kinds of water-related practices, uh, a lot of seashell symbolism, uh, and that also is quite important in terms of making this historical connection to the north. I, the other connection is the enormous poles in the middle of circles. And this, uh, why don't you describe some of the rituals associated with that? Because I, I got very excited when I read this. Yeah, it's fascinating. Uh, you know, across Mesoamerica, there are there uh, have been pole climbing or pole flying rituals going way back into uh, you know the era before Christ. Uh, a lot of those were in West Mexico, and it seems like even that is a story in in its of itself. Well, how did that initially spread? Um, but it certainly ends up in the Huastec region, uh, and and. Uh, we know this in part because it's still practiced today. And, and by pole uh, and, flying, what do you mean? Um, uh, well, in the ancient past, there are ancient past meaning in West Mexico in the uh, centuries BC. Uh, there's there are sculptures showing that there were men dressed up as birds who would climb to the top and then pretend to be flying, you know, on a, in a kind of a prone position on top of the poles. And these are 50, uh, 50 to 100 foot high poles, like big telephone poles, basically, even taller. Uh, in in uh, the historic era, that is it contact you know, with Cortez and then everybody else and the Spaniards coming in, they also described these same rituals on the, on the, among the Huastecs especially, but other nearby people. And in that time, and still today, the climbing had the flying had morphed into um, more of a hanging. So you, you climb to the top of the pole. Usually it's four men with a fifth one who's dancing on top of the pole. And they will tie themselves off on ropes, um, twisted around the pole, such that when you lean back and drop off of the top of the pole, the pole begins to spin. And so these, these are, it's like a carousel ride. These, these flyers are then spinning around 
the pole spiraling basically downward um, as they go in an ever widening circle until they get to the ground. All the while, there's a fifth person on top of the pole playing a flute, calling to the rain god or, or other gods. And, um, uh, you know, in that way, it's a very much acrobatic kind of uh, religious ritual uh, that's, that's also quite dangerous. <laughs> yeah. So as you point out in some detail, this is, um, I mean, when you start to think about it, there are so many pole dance ceremonies throughout North America. Uh, as a kid, and I was obsessed with Plains Indian culture because uh, my grandfather had grown up in the 1890s, uh, early 1900s amongst the Lakota, uh, near the Lakota. And of course, their Sundance ritual and the, and the Blackfoot and the Pawnee, they all have this ritual where they dance around the pole connected by hooks into their pectoral muscles, um, mm -hmm. which apparently induces not just pain, but eventually a, a trance-like state, which I shouldn't wonder. Uh, but uh, also Eastern Algonquins, they, in the... Uh, paintings of John White of uh, from Roanoke Colony, you see Algonquins in North Carolina, modern North Carolina also engaging, not quite in the same sort of self-inflicted torture, but they're dancing around a pole as well. So there's lots of these pole ceremonies which seem to be everywhere. And you're suggesting this is not an accident. It's not an accident. And I think there is a history that we don't yet fully understand. I think archaeologically we can begin to see that history. Uh, uh, in part, we can begin to see it now because, you know, it's 2023. There's a lot more archaeological information. We have a lot more radiocarbon dates. We just know better uh, the details of past cultures. And, and really, uh, so in the Mississippi Valley, that kind of pole ceremonialism that we're talking about, it, it may have been there in terms of there were circles of poles, that you know, if you, if you see all the way in Louisiana um, uh, back, you know, at almost 2000 BC, but you don't see this big central pole that would have been tall that we can sort of surmise that there would have been some kind of pole climbing or flying rituals associated with these um, until really the medieval warm period. And that's when you see the spread up the Mississippi Valley, if not even into the Southwest, there it's a little murky also. Uh, but I, I really do think that uh, in Mesoamerica, these are generally associated with uh, the winds that bring rain, gods or God, uh, the Sundance in the plains, uh, which may have come through, you know, gotten out to the plains by way of the Mississippi Valley, uh, is also generally oriented toward the thunderer gods uh, and other gods, too. Uh, and I think that's all part of this big, big history that we're now beginning to to glimpse okay, uh, the, the multiple aspects of the link should be clear. People know about the thunderbirds, you know, obviously gods connect or beings connected with thunder, rain, water. Um, so there's, there's a, there's a link, uh, and between humans flying, you know, in, in, as birds, there seems to be, there's, there's some interesting thing going on there. Yeah. And, it, and it's not that, uh, I'm not necessarily saying that, I mean, thunder is a very palpable, you know, uh, a visceral kind of experience. It's, it, it does something to people, and it would have always done something to people, and people may have mythologized it all the way back to the very first people in the continent. But the specific array of ritual practices that kind of go with this Mesoamerican wind that brings rain god, those are 
become manifest in to the north, you know, really in this medieval period. So I am suggesting that there is a religious revitalization, if you will, or a whole new movement that brings in the specific practices uh, that do also ride on the on the uh, coattails of something like corn, corn arriving as well. Um, and that, that also happens in the East at the beginning of this medieval period. What, we'll get to corn, but I want to talk about shells before we do. Shells and circular pyramids. You've mentioned shells a couple of times. Um, shells, there's a water connection, but as you demonstrate again and again and again, that people very far from water, like the sort of the, the modern American Southwest, they have to have a chamber that is top paved with seashells. Um, these these shells, and we, we see that in Cabeza de Vaca's account. We see that in David Ingram's account. These things they called pearls are often drilled, you know, mollusks of some kind. So, what's the why do shells? I mean, you've probably dug up a lot of shells in your archaeological career, and you're not the yes. only one. So. You know, I, I I guess I would have been in the point where I'd say, ah, another damn shell or another damn hundred shells. But what what does what do they mean for them? Uh, well, be, before I tell you, um, it's probably good to point out that again, things that are the most powerful for for almost all native people, and actually, if you look around the world, all people, and uh, especially in any kind of pre pre modern context. The most powerful things are the most fundamental. So, you, you know, you get to like the fundamental associations of water and earth and sky and whatever's connected to those, those substances that are changeable, you know, and you can engage in different ways and in different states, you know, water, liquid, solid, gas, what have you. That's power. So that shell, a shell is a creature that everybody knows. I mean, everybody can see them in various streams or... People travel to oceans, you know, to to then see that see what how they what they are like, um, are one of those fundamental creatures that's connected to the interface between water and then the land under the water, uh, and they move. I mean, they're they're also you know they're just kind of slimy. They they don't really have much of a form. The creature inside of of a of a snail shell or a a, a bivalve. Uh, and that's also very like fundamental. Uh, so I think any every, people would seek the shells because that's a connection to this fundamental power. Which, one last thing, um, m- many people, many indigenous people in North America, from Mesoamerica to into the U.S., um, also have creation accounts that begin with water, and you know, and land being made from water. So if you're using shells or you're crushing them up and you're putting them in to temper your pots, which people do in the Mississippian realm, it's a connection to the creation story, which is an empowering, uh, you know, practice. Well, let me, uh, you, you raised the philosophical mystical ante. So let me, let me double down. Um, the closest I think that we feel to the, I mean, humans feel to the divine is on a beach. Um, that okay, we know now as modern people that the Milky Way is is infinite and all the rest of that stuff. But there's something palpable that we feel with a sound of surf. 
of something mm-hmm. enormous that we can't measure, that has has a noise, it has thunder, um, and it is it is immense and it is seemingly eternal and all powerful. And a shell, if you're in Cahokia or uh, the Four Corners region, and you you a shell is a link to the edge of eternity. It is that that liminal space. Oh, there I said it. That between sort of the land and and the ocean, the land eternity. It's not and and as you said, it's not just them. I mean, look at what the ocean means in the Old Testament. I mean, it's it's chaos. It's unruled. It's the Gentiles. It's all these things. It's 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 powerful. Uh, when the, when you say the sea shall be no more at, at the end of Revelation, that's a statement about a profound statement about cosmology. Um, we don't we, when we move into our scientific worldview, it's hard to understand that. But when we're at the beach, that first five minutes at the beach, everyone feels it. Let's put it that I way. I think I think it's important what you just said about feeling and experience. So that listeners appreciate that these these fundamental beliefs, if you will, we tend to think of as in our heads, but they're not. They are in, in the in way we engage the world outside of us through our senses. And so the most powerful beliefs are actually not just beliefs. They are experiences. And whether you experience it once in your life or whether it's a daily thing that you experience over and over and over, uh, it's powerful. And those are the most important things. And, and yes, and if you have a seashell, you may have gone to the ocean once in your life as an indigenous person, let's say. You remember it. But also, you wear, if you wear it, it's a daily reminder of that experience that you kind of re-experience over and over and over. And that's, that's why these things are so powerful, because they're not just abstract. Yeah. Um, circular pyramids <laughs> to something else. This is something else the Huasteca have. Uh, why are they significant? Uh, <clears throat> circular pyramid, well, there's the shape to begin with. Uh, I, we don't think about it too much in our modern everyday world, but farmers think about natural signs. And uh, what's circular that they see every day or every night? Well, it's celestial objects, something like the moon at night. Um, it's other uh, celestial phenomena. So a warm front, uh, will bring rain and farmers, you know, will kind of what, what brings a warm front? Well, oftentimes you'll see a ring around the moon. Uh, so another circle is going to bring rain. Uh, a ripple in a, in a water, if you throw a pebble in, is circular. So there are multiple kind of reinforcing um, factors that say circles are associated with water. And so when you build a pyramid that's circular, it's, it's just kind of all the connotations of a circle kind of be, are focused in that temple. Especially then if you, on top of it, you have a what's essentially a, a sweat lodge or a steam bath where you go into it and you heat up hot rocks and then you pour water over them to create steam, another state of water that then has healing benefits for the people who are inside of that circular building. And so it's a multiple redundant sort of uh, embedded associations of all the good things about water. You know, we need rain, we want to be healed, uh, and that's the circular pyramid and especially that building on top. And that one of the nice things about some of these other early Spanish travelers is that they also, they also 
uh, explain some of this, especially in Mesoamerica, where then that's, that kind of information was then later lost. So we, we can't get, we don't have time to get into the Southwest, alas, and into the connections there. That's sort of it. I want to move towards Cahokia. Um, the sort of next link on the chain from the Huasteca are the Caddoan? How do I, how do I, how do I? Are the Caddo. Caddo. Yeah. Just the Caddo. So, so the Caddo are the, are the people and also the language associated with this, um, the Southern um, um, uh, people who are Mississippianized or in some ways they're Mississippians at the edge of the plains. Okay. Uh, and, and they also, um, that makes them go-betweens. So they have relationships with all the people around them and well, who's to the South of the Caddo besides those foragers, you have Mesoamerica down there. Yeah. So there are links both overland along trails, but also along sea trails going along the sort of the intracoastal, intracoastal waterway of uh, Mesoamerica. All, all the rivers that uh, emanate out of the Caddo region, which is uh, southern Oklahoma, northeastern Texas, and um, southwestern Arkansas, and part of Louisiana, all those, all those rivers go right into the Gulf. Uh, and yes, it's likely that uh, those people occasionally traveled. And you go to the Gulf, you basically, you know, get on the, on the uh, uh, blown into, down to the south into Mesoamerica, or you paddle. Um, and who's the first sort of civilized, if you will, you know, town, uh, organized towns, people you meet? It's the Huastecs. Uh, and wh what do they have? Circular flat top pyramids with water temples on top. Pole ceremony, uh, complicated pole ceremonies, and, and complicated pole <laughs> ceremonies, <laughs> and so uh, when they adopt corn, which is right around 900, they also seem to be adopting these circular platforms, um, you know, the, the water shrines, the shell, you know, ceremonialism, and and probably the the uh, pole ceremonialism. Uh, certainly, the next link then up from the cattle world, at Cahokia has all of those things. So let's get to, now we're at Cahokia. So uh, realizing I knew I had heard of the Mississippian, but before I read your, your book on Cahokia, before, you know, I, I was really unaware. And I, I was a pretty well, overly educated person, but I still hadn't, uh, I still hadn't heard of them. So let's take five minutes and describe the, the wonder of Cahokia and the, sort of the epicenter of the Mississippian civilization. Uh, it, uh, you know, there, there were always mound builders, if you will. I say always, uh, going yeah. back to 5,000 BC, there were mound builders in the, in the South, uh, all the way down into Mesoamerica. Uh, so it's not that these were like the first mound builders. No, and mound building was a traditional phenomenon. What was Cahokia then? Cahokia was really the first urban experiment. And, and when I say experiment, it was, it was also like the largest thing that ever happened north of north of the Huastecs uh, um, until until you know you get modern uh, American cities yeah and so Cahokia when uh, as a as an early urban experiment was at the same scale as Mesopotamian early Mesoamerican uh, early African cities uh, early Chinese ones as well so, and, and that means 10,000 or more people in one place it's now looking like it could have been up to 20,000 in, in the core um, of this sort of sprawling city. Um, but it's a city of 
earthen mounds, uh, platform mounds mostly, including circular platforms with you know sweat lodges on top. And it's a city of people living in pole and thatch housing, which is also also I mean something that they were doing in Mesoamerica. Um, they're not building with stone, um, but there's a dense concentration of people, and 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 they are. Um, planning this city so that it has multiple cosmological alignments with the sun, the moon, and the Milky Way. Uh, so in, in many ways, it's, it's a classic kind of early city. It's big, it's organized, and then it has historical effects. And as soon as they're organizing this city, they're traveling. And we know this because they're a Cahokian. You can think of them as colonies or religious outposts of some kind far to the north in Minnesota and Wisconsin and far to the south in Louisiana and in the Caddo area. Um, we also now know a recent study that there are Caddo people at Cahokia at the very beginning. Hmm. Uh, it could be a few percent uh, or more of the Cahokians are immigrants from the Caddo world. Um, and maybe 20, 30% of the other people who end up at Cahokia are also immigrants from other parts of the Midwest. Uh, which, which is kind of the, the, the fascination of Cahokia. It's like, wow, it, it gets big really fast. I mean, it, you go from a, a region which has just a few thousand people to a region which has upwards of 50,000 people in 50 years or less. So there are lots of people moving in. Um, so whatever they're doing there, it's attractive uh, for human beings. And this, you can't have a city like this in Mesopotamia or Egypt, or China, without a grain, and with farmers producing a grain, be it rice, or millet, or wheat. In this case, it's maize, it's corn. Um, so we can, that's the only way, those 50,000 people, those 20,000 people in Cahokia, if it's that many, they're not all farmers. They're doing other things. They can't support themselves. So what? it's not just a city, it's, it's an immense a district of farmlands stretching around the city that supports the people there. They're not going hunting. They're they're going they're going to have to get use corn to support themselves. Uh, that's true. I mean, they're they're still uh, using traditional crops. You know, there's uh, things that are we call weeds today that farmers spray that they were growing for food. But what they do is they supplement that with fields of corn. You're correct. Uh, uh, it's it's a very rich environment too. So there's still a lot of fishing, especially mm -hmm. going on. Uh, depending on where you're living. Um, there's also, there are also communities of farmers just living on the outskirts of this region who are also clearly specializing in growing surplus grains, especially corn, uh, for that city. Uh, so it has that uh, kind of tributary dynamic or you know, things are being grown in these big fields on the outskirts to be, to be shipped in for big festivals you know, in, the, in the heart of Cahokia. Uh, and another interesting thing about, you're right, I mean, corn is so important, and yet corn doesn't come in until 900 AD, uh, right at the beginning of the medieval period. And then the city takes off at about 1050 AD um, with a little bit of Mesoamerican um, uh, inspiration, it seems, you know, built into it, including those circular pl flat-topped um, temples. And how do they build all these mounds so fast? I mean, what's the labor force? I mean, how, how is this, and this is getting a little bit off topic, but I mean, in St. Louis alone, uh, the sort of, there's, there is a, there, 
East St. Louis, Cahokia, and basically right around the arch are the two, the three epicenters of, of the Mississippian civilization, correct? And there, what's mm-hmm. the what's the number of mounds that were in, in modern St. Louis alone? Uh, in St. Louis, there were 26. Yeah. Um, okay. it, at East St. Louis, there were 50. And in Cahokia proper, and these things are all kind of interconnected, mind you, but in Cahokia itself, there are at least 120. So overall, you're looking at 200 mounds, including the third largest pyramid in the new world. You know, it's there in yeah. the middle of Cahokia. So there's a huge amount of human energy going into mound building. And a lot of those mound, a lot of that mound building is happening right at the beginning. So, uh, and not only that, something people don't generally realize, except for archaeologists, there's a, a lot of, of land leveling going on before they build those mounds. Mm-hmm. So they're sculpting the earth very much like China and the early Chinese cities. They go in first and they, they clear the landscape. They move around, you know, they get rid of some hills. They level off some low areas. Then they build those pyramids. Uh, it, the only way to explain it, I think, is because there's no evidence uh, of, you know, uh, people being captured in great numbers and used as a slave labor, anything like that. It's, it's belief. I mean, people are wanting to be a part of this. Uh, and I think the only way to explain how would a group of people in the, you know, at the epicenter of this uh, urban development be able to create something that is like um, um, that kind of attraction is they are pulling on everything they possibly can, all esoteric knowledge, long distance contacts. They know things at Cahokia that nobody ever knew before because nobody had ever pulled it together in that way before. And so if you're near it, uh, and this is also a big center of healing because these water shrines are all about healing, uh, you're better off. Your family is better off for, for being there and being connected to it than if you're just living out by yourself, you know, in a kind of a dangerous open area somewhere. So it's a new religious movement, which is creating exciting and vibrant, let's call it like a utopia. This is a, this is a Mesoamerican, Mississippian, Mississippi Valley sort of utopia. It's a shining city in the bottomlands, um, which yes. has been blessed by the gods with crops and rain and healing. So you want to go to something like that. Yeah, yeah. And I, as I say, it even attracts cattle people Yeah, who you would think, well, oh, well, they're, they're closer to Mesoamerica. Maybe they're, they're better off. Now for a while, Cahokia is the big game in town. And so uh, people are less, uh, after Cahokia is built, I mean, Cahokia does build in Mesoamerican ideas and objects, uh, at least reference to those objects. Um, but then they become the epicenter of the known world for, for most people north of the U.S.-Mexico border and uh, in the east. And also Cahokian objects then, uh, Mississippian objects, distribute them, are are taken, not just, they don't distribute themselves, but they're taken to all sorts of other places. Yes. I mean, there's, there's one, what's that, that famous item from Gulf Shores, Alabama, uh, uh, Mississippi. Um, there, but from the, uh, there, there are various objects that can be found that are produced in Cahokia and are obviously treasured elsewhere. Mm, yes. Yes. Uh, and, and those are often, uh, I think what you're describing, there's a whole series of carvings of gods or yes. God men. Or, or there's also the most, many of them are of the central female God, which is, a, uh, you can connect to Mesoamerica pretty s- simply. Um, 
And so you have those carvings. Some of those are converted into tobacco smoking pipes. Mm-hmm. Um, you also have other kind of ornaments that our Cahokians are creating that reference the, these Mesoamerican gods, including the, the long-nosed, goggle-eyed god, um, uh, are gods of Mesoamerica who are the creator gods, uh, Quetzalcoatl and Tezcatlipoca or some versions of those, are there at Cahokia, and Cahokians are making them, and then they're giving them away to, to spread their own version of this religion. So did, um, did Cahokia then have an impact upon the Eastern woodlands that we can, which, I mean, speaking of back to the sort of standard receive view, the idea that they're very isolated, they're apart, they're developing on their own, but would you even be able to detect a, a Cahokian influence upon the Eastern woodland people, the Algonquins, but also the, the, uh, how to, Haudenosaunee, uh, the Iroquoian? Uh, uh, people have made that argument. Uh, and it's, it's one of those things that you can imagine in the standard view that that's a, that's a challenge in and of itself to lots of archaeologists. Like, well, maybe Cahokia is not so important here. Uh, it's it certainly, in my mind, as a Cahokia specialist, you know, yes, Cahokia has a huge impact. If not direct, then indirect. Everything from um, the particular game that I don't talk about in this book, but the game that is uh, traditional around Cahokia that they kind of politicize and oh, yeah. then they they spread. Uh, that game um, goes all the way up into um, Haudenosaunee territory. I mean, and and all the way out into the plains. So that's kind of an indirect um, Cahokia. What, could, could you describe that 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 game? Uh, and there's like an, the the evangelistic. That this is a game that just sort of tied into Cahokian evangelism, for lack of a yeah, term. yeah. It's and and we know, and that's uh, we know that because the first uh, uh, stones that are found is called the Chunky game, yeah. and the first stones that are found are found in just across the the very central part of the Mississippi Valley, and they're small. They're probably kids' games, uh, kid stones. Uh, by about 900, when corn is coming in and, and the villages are starting to grow, you see those stones get a little bigger. They're still being locally made, and, and they're being, um, whenever you f- they're found, they're found generally in the middle of a village. So they're becoming community property. Uh, Cahokia appears at 1050, and you see Cahokians starting to craft a, their own stones. That, that It's a very distinctive shape using a material that is uh, coming from the Mississippi River a little bit to the south of Cahokia itself. Uh, and those stones then you will find at these outposts or these uh, colonies that I described earlier in Wisconsin and Minnesota and down to Louisiana and into Oklahoma and to the Caddo country and up the Ohio a little bit. So it, it's pretty clear that either people are coming to Cahokia to get to play the game and to get one of those stones and then take the game back to their homeland or Cahokians are going out themselves or some combination, you know, with stones as a part of some kind of missionizing um, uh, activity. Uh, and the, the stones, uh, the, the, the farthest they're found is on the South Carolina and Florida uh, to, to the Southeast. And like I say, up into uh, Minnesota to the North and Oklahoma to the West. So let's, we're at the end of our time. So how would you, in the end, how would you sum up your argument about this, about this new sort of interconnected Mesoamerican world during the medieval warm period? 
Uh, at first, I should acknowledge, you know, that that there were there were other earlier scholars that had this thought that there there are interconnections that mattered, uh, but there's always been this resistance among archaeologists who are parochial and they're and they're uh, necessarily parochial in their studies. Um, I think we've reached a point where we can transcend that because the evidence is there as so much of it now that it's hard to deny that there, there was a specific kind of historical relationship between peoples to the North and peoples of Mesoamerica, but it's not one that's based on the standard mechanisms, a historical, you know, uh, uh, transmissions that we used to think it's not really about trade. It's instead about religion and, um, Religion, because these people are are all uh, value religious or spiritual experiences that involve things and powers that they want to understand, and they travel to do it. Um, and it, it happens; it's accentuated. I mean, they're always doing this, but it, the medieval warm period accentuates the things that they've always been doing, um, and and um, and causes you know as people are as the civilizations are collapsing to the south, the Maya. They're actually building in the north, and so it, it, you can just trace this this movement um, from south to north through the medieval warm period. Do you imagine that there is one sort of moment at which this sort of passes north? I mean, do you have this sort of? Con- I I do think that it, it's probably a series of moments. I think you can look at Cahokia, the beginning of Cahokia as one moment. I think if folks did not, somebody there did not travel to the south, maybe with some Caddo cousins, all the way down to the Mesoamerica, that we would not have had Cahokia. Because I think that was very empowering. And it, maybe once they did it, maybe they kept doing it, uh, um, at least periodically. So that is a, a f- it's not just what, maybe one year, you know, one moment like that, or one person, but it's still a pretty focused historical moment, if we're a bit more generous with that idea. Yes. Sim- simply think, because it happened so quickly. Yes, because it happened so quickly. Yeah. Um, uh, it's also, you know, you can, you can see the very f- things that are being made um, in Mesoamerica. You can see copies of them in the North. So it's not that there's trade. It's more like somebody knows the pattern. Maybe they even have an outline of an object. And then they reproduce it in the north, indicating again this moment of travel uh, and replication, you know, elsewhere. Well, my guest today has been Timothy Paukatat. He is the author most recently of Gods of Thunder How Climate Change, Travel, and Spirituality Reshaped Pre Colonial America. Timothy Paukatat, thank you so much for being part of Historically Thinking. Uh, you're welcome. It's been my pleasure. And thanks so much to you as well for being a part of Historically Thinking. If you like the podcast, then share it with a friend, or many friends. Vivian Lundy is our assistant producer. John Ruddat is our sound engineer. I'm Al Zambone, and I'll be back next week with more history to think about and to shape the way we think about the present. 